Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on everything that you're talking about and we're talking about in the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarvey and with me as always is Duncan Castles and we can't start anywhere today but with, of course, Liverpool's first Premier League title and their first championship success in 30 years. We'd like to put it on record. Our congratulations to everyone at Liverpool Football Club. We may not be supporters because we're not, but we recognise quality when we see it. And if you remember, this was the podcast that trademarked it's Liverpool's title to lose. Well, Duncan, they didn't let us down because they didn't lose it. Um, and of course, we had the, all the millions of the Transfer Window podcasts uh, money on Liverpool to win it <laughs> at odds on. So this may be the last one we ever uh, broadcast because uh, we can now retire to Barbados. Um, not. Uh, however, uh, I think the question um, the day after the night before, though, is Duncan. When a, any team, doesn't matter who it is, uh, if it's a club who are used to success in winning league titles or not, is where they go and how they go after they achieve that goal. We've seen it happen before. Sir Alex Ferguson was famous for uh, his mantra that you forget the trophy you've won the morning after you achieve the success and you start again. Uh, Jurgen Klopp has, I think, of some some work to do, and also um, has some things to address regarding his squad and regarding motivation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, it's fair that they be given time to celebrate. However, as we both know from our experience in the game, uh, how you motivate players and a squad to go again and repeat the success is harder. It's that famous or infamous difficult second album moment. Yeah, look, it's a remarkable achievement there. They've won it with um, seven games to spare. They've lost just once, 28 victories from those 31 matches. On 86 points, they have the opportunity um, to record 107 points, which would substantially go past Manchester City's record um, for the highest points total in the Premier League. Um, but, yeah, you're talking about what you do next. And, and in some ways, ironically, that margin of victory could be the biggest handicap for Jurgen Klopp going forward. Um, I think the margin of victory has to be regarded as a bit deceptive um, because of decisions that went in their favour, um, big VAR calls. We've talked about them before in the podcast. Um I think you've seen a, a league where the competition has not been as strong as it's been in past years. You can go down the table, you look at Manchester City, um, Manchester City have lost eight games already. Um, this, this is not the competition we had last season when we had that title where both sides won and won and won and won until the final day. And Manchester City just pipped Liverpool. It's been a very different contest. Manchester City have had obvious weaknesses in their squad from the very beginning. Um, you had the game between 
uh, Liverpool, Manchester City, Anfield, where those sort of decisions going in Liverpool's favour were writ large and, and set a, a pattern for the season. But, you know, Liverpool would have won this anyway. Um, you look at other teams in the table and actually that eight defeats for Manchester City, the only club who have had less defeats are Wolves. Um, you've got Chelsea on, on nine, Leicester City on eight, Manchester United on eight. Um, another measure of, of how poor the competition has been is that Manchester United are on 49 points. They are in contention for a Champions League place still. But if you average their points per game out over the season, they're going to finish on 60 points at, at, on current um, average per game, which would be their lowest ever total in the Premier League. So um, Jurgen Klopp talked about uh, this today in an interview um, about the idea that this is the, the best team in the world. And his, his comment was, uh, I, I really don't think, and I'm not interested in what people say about best team in the world because I'm absolutely not interested in it. But what I can say is that I don't know one team who could have had this season this year. Barcelona, what a club. Real Madrid, what a club. Juventus, what a club. Nobody can be 20 points ahead of Manchester City in this league. Of course not. It's not possible because you have to play so many strong teams. Um, I just don't think the league was as strong this year. And I think the, the performances and the statistics demonstrate that. Why is this an issue for Liverpool? Because you see with Jurgen Klopp that he wants to strengthen from a position of strength. And that's absolutely the right way to go about things. Uh, let's roll back to um, two summers ago when Pep Guardiola had won the Premier League title with a record um, total of points. The fir very first interview he gave after winning that title, what was he talking about? He was talking about the importance of winning back-to-back -back Premier League titles to demonstrate that they were a truly great team um, and the importance of, of doing that because that is the really difficult part is to continue success in the domestic league two seasons in a row to stop your players slipping off their standards. Um, and emphasising that he needed reinforcements to do that um, and it, just pushing the club to go further. Klopp wants to do the same. Klopp, as we told you, um, tried very hard to get Timo Werner in to freshen up his attack. Um, he did all the groundwork with the player. He convinced the player that was the place he wanted to come and the club decided they would not pay the release clause for the player. In many ways, Timo Werner would be an ideal signing for Liverpool at this point in time because he would fit into that attack. He would give them alternative options. He would pressure Sadio Mane and Mo Salah, who both turned 28. He um, would give them an obvious player to play if the African Nations Cup goes ahead um, in uh, the early part of next year and they lose both Sadio Mane and Mo Salah simultaneously for what could be up to five or six weeks. Now, take both of those players out of Liverpool's attack next season and, uh, and you don't have adequate replacements, then suddenly that gap to the opponents becomes a lot smaller. Um, it becomes a lot more difficult for them to uh, dominate in the division. I think the issue they, they face here, though, is that Fenway Sports Group are looking at 
23 points ahead at the moment. They're looking at the potential that they put a, a record points total up in the Premier League and they're saying, well, we're miles better than the opposition. We won the European Cup last year. Um, we've invested a lot of money in the squad. Um, we've pushed the wage bill up and up and up. We've been hit by COVID and we've said that our finances are, are, are endangered by COVID. We tried to furlough our non-playing staff as a way of um, ensuring against that. Um, we don't really need to spend. We don't really need to invest. And, and maybe and even if Jurgen Klopp is telling us that's what he wants to do, we don't really need to, do we really need to push it as far as the manager's telling us? Because we've got more headroom um, from what we see as performances on the pitch and results in the, the league table. And we can afford to be um, a little bit less indulgent of, uh, of the manager and less indulgent in new recruitment than we have been in the past. That I think is a big risk for them. And that is the thing that, that, that probably signals the danger that they could fall back towards other teams if the players become um, presumptuous, um, if they, they drop off the levels of performance that, they, that Klopp himself talks about. Um, the consistency, he said, has been insane, absolutely insane. And remember that the, the way Liverpool play is, is so much oriented towards physical output. They, they're tactically superb. They have excellent players in almost all positions, but they have to push their opponents hard. And they, they've had very few injuries. They've gone from a team that... Um, that uh, had serious injury problems at the start of Klopp's reign, a team that um, rotated um, in the 17-18 season uh, 59 times by the early part of December, which was the second highest rate of rotation ever. They've gone away from that model and Klopp at the time saying that was the only way he could operate and, and the only way sensibly to operate with a, a squad of high quality to a, a system where they basically play the same team minus a couple of changes game after game after game and and have done that essentially for two years um which is demanding on the players which re requires a some kind of special physical preparation that their opponents don't seem to be able to copy which is unusual or don't want to copy um, because generally in football, when you see a team doing something that gives them a physical advantage in the way Liverpool have done, the other clubs will learn what it is and try and buy the the, the practitioners involved in uh, in enabling the, the team to perform that way and copy it. It's what Sir Alex Ferguson did um, throughout his career, was copy what the opponents were doing better than him, bring it back into Manchester United and compete for titles again. They're back on their perch by a massive margin. They they see the the potential to go level with Manchester United on English league titles in their their history. Um, but it, as you say, looking forward is the important thing for them. Don't allow yourself to drop away from that. Um, and are the owners prepared to do what Jurgen Klopp wants to do in that situation? And remember. We're in an artificial and a strange and unusual transfer market because although they've won the league with uh, seven games remaining, we're almost at the end of June. Um, normally, this is way into close season and most of or a lot of the transfer deals are being done 
the clubs are now working on transfer deals, but they're trying to work out what's happening in this market. And we're going to be starting another season pretty soon after the end of this season. So whatever work you intend to do in that market has to be done um, quickly and in a, in a situation that's harder to predict than any transfer market we've had um, for years. I wonder, Duncan, um, given their achievements, uh, obviously World Club champions, uh, European champions and now Premier League champions, and of course, most significantly, that last one, uh, given the amount of time and the historical nature of Liverpool's dominance of English football, that yes, Liverpool have a core of players in their first 11 stroke squad who I suspect um, don't have any ambition to move and want to achieve more success at Anfield, uh, whether or not they have Liverpool in their blood or not. But players like who've moved around a lot, like Sadio Mane, Mo Salah, Roberto Firmino, three key players, absolutely crucial players for Jurgen Klopp, having achieved now probably everything they had hoped or dreamed of achieving with Liverpool, their choice may be, may be that they get the opportunity to move to Real Madrid or Barcelona or to Bayern Munich uh, and pursue the, re- uh, the next chapter of their career elsewhere. And all of the messages I've, I, I have kind of interpreted from speaking to people who either work or deal with FSG is that this is an organisation whose philosophy is under promise and then overachieve. Now, in some ways, since they bought Liverpool, they certainly have done both. Um, but the idea that you underpromise and overachieve inherently suggests that you do not necessarily invest from that position of strength. Hence why they did not pursue Timo Werner and pay his buyout clause, despite the fact it was relatively inexpensive, even in uh, an unstable market. If they were to get a transfer request from one of their front three, uh, and that is not unthinkable given the situation, uh, and especially as those players have now increased their value and um, their status and profile even more so having won the Premier League, then how do they then go out and replace one of those players? Because doesn't seem to be that many players coming through um, in terms of academy or um, under-23s uh, uh, to replace certainly in that position. And if they're not willing to spend money and have refused to meet Werner's, as I said, relatively achievable buyout clause, then uh, does Klopp feel undermined, as he did last summer, having won the Champions League uh, and was given no money to spend with regards to augmenting his squad? And then what does that mean for Klopp, who recently signed a contract which allegedly will keep him at Liverpool till 2024? Um, These are, I think, the kind of serious questions which will be being brought up in the Liverpool boardroom and indeed in football department meetings in the next week or so as they start to prepare for after this season uh, and how they're going to approach that. Look, 
Liverpool are very strategic about their recruitment and they've been very, I mean, it's easy to say they've been very intelligent and very successful in what they've done, but their, their model is such that they have planned for the future and they're, they, they're happy to have conversations with key players to find out whether they see a future elsewhere, whether they see that their their period at the club has a certain length and they'd like to to move to another league. And Sadio Mane and Mo Salah are obvious examples of that. And they want to have those conversations because they want to be forewarned and they want to set it up in a way that they maximise uh, the value on the transfer coming in. And they bring, they are able to bring in a replacement of equal quality or equal potential to have the same quality at a cheaper price. Um, they pay high for those those players. I mean, you see the way Liverpool have recruited. Their, they go to the second tier of the market. They spend 50, 60, 70 million euros on bringing players in who um, they believe will, will turn into 100 million euro plus players. And they've done it successfully on multiple occasions now. Um, that has been part of their strategy going into this window. They were aware that Sadio Mane and Mo Salah um, have an interest in playing in Spain. Um, as I say, just turned 28. So if you're going to sell them, it's pretty much at the peak of their valuations, having won European Cup, now winning um, the Premier League. In a normal market, this would have been a summer where you could have seen Barcelona or Real Madrid um, or even a Juventus um, saying, right, we want to sign one of these players and we will pay you a substantial transfer fee. And the player saying, okay, I've done my time at Liverpool. It's been great. I've done amazing things here. I've won everything there was to win of significance here. Um, this is the opportunity to go and play in another league. Um, almost every top footballer wants to play in Spain sometime in their career. They want to live in Spain to get a pay rise. Um, that could have worked for Liverpool. Um, they take the money, they buy, in this case, it would almost certainly have been Timo Werner. Uh, they have the replacement, they make a profit, they um, improve the age uh, status of their squad and they bypass that problem of the African Nations Cup that we're facing. And I'm told that was the strategy going in and that's why they did so much work on Timo Werner, just the recruitment team and Jurgen Klopp. That has gone away because of COVID. The chances of them getting that substantial offer um, and the players getting the substantial offer that takes them to Barcelona or Real Madrid is, is I think, virtually nil uh, in this summer because of what's happened to the finances of those clubs. So they, they have to um, reconsider the way they're working and, uh, and reconsider their plan. And what we know for sure is They've allowed one of the players that Jurgen Klopp really wanted to come in and saw himself working with and saw, saw revitalising the squad uh, and giving himself more options, Timo Werner, to go to a direct rival, um, which isn't great either. Um, you, you lose the player your manager wanted and you give him to one of your competitors, a competitor that's a long way behind them in the league. But um, Liverpool were a long way behind Chelsea in the league a, a, a few years ago, and now they're a long way ahead of Chelsea because uh, they recruited well and structured well. So you, it's dangerous if you don't go down the right path. Um, and 
we have seen owners do this on multiple occasions in the Premier League before. They, they see a title success. Um, they believe that's because they have managed uh, the club well by delegating responsibility to the correct people in some cases to do buying and recruitment for them. Um, but they also say, well, actually, we've spent enough money to to win now. Uh, go and win again with the, the squad we've, we've built you. And usually that comes back and bites clubs, bites the owners in the arse. <laughs> Indeed. A very good phrase uh, to use in this particular situation. So speaking of um, anyone else getting bitten behind, um, where does this leave the rivals of Liverpool and the English Premier League with regards to who's going to challenge next season, um, who's got the best chance, and what anyone else can do to stop this Liverpool uh bandwagon rolling on to a consecutive second title? Well, you can't see Pep Guardiola being happy with this situation and you can't see Pep Guardiola not going to um, his Abu Dhabi owners and saying, look, um, the squad isn't good enough. I need new players. I told you I needed a centre-back last summer. You didn't give me one. You didn't give me enough spending then. Um, if you want to be top of the, the Premier League again, then you're going to have to invest heavily in the squad and, and give me the players I want in a number of positions. Um, Pep Guardiola has gone through his entire managerial career um, pressuring clubs to get what he wants in certain situations. He's chosen, he's also chosen the right moments to leave clubs when, um, when he saw things weren't going to work for him. He exited Barcelona at a time which was sensible to exit Barcelona. He exited Bayern at a time was, it was sensible to exit Bayern. Came to Manchester City at a time where um, winning the Premier League and, uh, and doing well in the Champions League would be regarded as, as success. Um, you know, choosing Manchester City over clubs like Manchester United, who wanted him, where the the bar would have been much higher to to be perceived as a success. He doesn't really have many options to leave the club now. So, so if he stays another year, then he will push them to spend. And he and Manchester City have this opportunity that we talked about last week on the podcast, and that financial fair play rules are being relaxed by UEFA during the COVID period. Um, UEFA are inviting owners who have substantial uh, equity to invest in their club to do that, to cover um, the cost of, of transfers um, and, uh, and recruitment moves that those clubs make during that period. So it's, it's an open door, essentially, for Manchester City to do that. Um, so you would expect them to be uh, the big opposition to Liverpool. Um, I'm not sure Chelsea can make the jump. Uh, they are recruiting intelligently so far, but and and they are building a team around a you know a cadre of really promising um, youth players. But it's probably a big too big a jump to go from first season of those young players, add some um, other uh, top talents in, but guys who aren't uh, accustomed to the Premier League yet, and Hakim Ziyech and and, uh, and Timo Werner, you'd expect them to take a bit of time to adapt as, as most new players come in, and, and a manager who's still inexperienced. Um, 
So you'd think they would need at least another season to to be truly competitive with Liverpool. Um, Tottenham do not have their troubles to seek with no uh, proper money to invest in the, the transfer market. I think Wolves could get better off their base, but their, their base is um, sufficiently far away from Liverpool. You don't see them challenging for a title. And, uh, and Manchester United um, still seem to be a long way from the finished article, um, despite the excitement over uh, Paul Pogba and uh, Bruno Fernandes being paired together from the start against Sheffield United. Um, and the ease of that victory, um, I think Manchester United need to be careful that they don't get carried away with what happens in these the artificial conditions of behind closed door games and um, you know playing a team like Sheffield United who, as we said before the restart, were going to be disadvantaged by having to play multiple games in a short period of time with a thin squad. Um, they are set up to play one game a week in the, in the main part and they've done that well t- to, to get to the position they were in in the in the Premier League before restart and then restart they're asked to play Wednesday um, and two subsequent games inside a week so no surprise they, they didn't look great opposition when they went to Old Trafford for that match. We will come on to um, Manchester United's fans' uh, response to Liverpool's Premier League win later in the podcast but I am intrigued Duncan um, by the, the notion that this is Man United's worst nightmare. A Liverpool team who not only are dominating it domestically, but also uh, in European football. Uh, now, I mean, the, the phrase, and you mentioned it before, um, back on their perch. Of course, a reference to Sir Alex Ferguson's favourite, uh, sorry, infamous phrase about knocking them off their perch. I wonder what the response is going to be because you would think logically the response would be from a club who uh, are in this traditional and very bitter rivalry with um, Liverpool would be, right, we're going to go out and buy the best player, the best players, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the noise is coming from Old Trafford and from Solskjaer in particular have all been about how we're improving. We're very close to challenging for the title. It's great to have Paul Pogba back and him and Fernandez will play well together. Um, Martial scores a hat-trick, etc., etc. It's almost like nothing to see here. Move along. You know, we're going to be a force next season without actually having anything substantial to justify that. Manchester United's strategy over the last year public relations strategy and and their stated strategy is gradual rebuild. It's going to take us um, three seasons to get to a position where we can compete for the title again. And they've sold that story very successfully. Um, There's been an acceptance of, as I pointed out earlier, um, what is headed towards being their worst Premier League points return ever um, on the basis that Solskjaer was doing this gradual, considered rebuild and they were getting back to playing the Manchester United style of football. So why uh, damage that story by saying, actually, we are going to go for the title next season? And actually, it is 
our job to stop Liverpool from winning it. And um, we're going to accelerate the the spend, bring some spend forward that was in our three-year plan so we can go head-to-head with them next season. That's just, if you're Ed Woodward and you're Uli Gunnar Solskjaer, that's just making yourself a hostage for fortune. The, the story they've sold has been accepted. It's been supported, um, as we've talked about many times, by the former Manchester United players in the media who, who have very, very rarely criticised anything that Solskjaer does from a, a managerial point of view. So they've got themselves into this kind of comfortable little um, slow rebuild. Uh, don't expect us to be a, a top team on the field because it's going to take time to get there, which is, I mean, as we've said in the podcast, it's a bizarre place for a club of Manchester United stature to be, but it's worked for them. Um, so if you're you're looking at it strategically in terms of reputation and uh, reputation for the for Ed Woodward, um, you'd carry on with that. And we know Edward was very concerned about his reputation because he's hired um, people to to work on burnishing it for him in, in various ways in, in the media in the, the past year. Um, and of course, to go down the route of saying, we have got to stop Liverpool from getting to our 20 English titles and we need to stop them now, would require spend. You're not going to get there with um, a gradualist approach in the next season. It's open to question whether you get there in a gradualist approach with Solskjaer in charge um, over the course of three seasons, but you're definitely not going to get there with the approach they have next season. Um, and therefore, if you want to accelerate it, you have to spend heavily. And um, we know the owners don't like spending heavily. They, they restrict spend to a certain level. They have spent more post-Ferguson than they've ever done before, but there are limits on it and um, retaining profitability and retaining the ability to take dividends and uh, director uh, payments from the club is very important to the Glazers. So they they, they run it as a financial exercise and, a, and an exercise for making money for them. And, uh, and it, is, it is very useful to the Glazers to have this story of uh, don't expect us to challenge for the title for two or three seasons bought by section of the support and by section of the media. It, um, it, it helps them carry on uh, making money from the club and, and takes a bit of pressure away from them. It's all very strange because uh, you can't really imagine um, this narrative being sold successfully to uh, the socios of Barcelona or the <laughs> fans of Real Madrid or even, even the fans of Rangers who are facing potentially Celtic winning a 10th title in a row next season. And if Rangers fans were told, no, it's a slow rebuild, we're not going to do anything dramatic to try and stop Celtic winning 10, which would obviously give them the record of Scottish titles, etc., etc., there'd be absolute revolution and uproar. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So the idea that Manchester United are not going to really bother about contesting Liverpool for the title, which would bring them level with the 20, just seems, I don't know, it's surreal. I, to be fair, there are lots of Manchester United fans who, who would say exactly what you said there and are very unhappy with the way the club is being run, happy, unhappy with uh, Edward Woodward's decisions, unhappy that they have 
um, and an experienced manager in terms of top level clubs in charge don't like the way he's he's been running the team um, and that there is plenty of complaint there um, but there is also a, a, a big chunk of the Manchester United support who the, the button the right buttons have been pushed it's we're investing in youth we're going to play the Manchester United way um, that has worked as a PR strategy in the main and the degree of resistance while there have been periods of this season where there has been, you know, audible protests and, and um, quite aggressive uh, in a, you know, in a non-physical fashion protests against the Glazers and Ed Woodward. Um, but the, the majority of this season and, and certainly this period now where they're, they're, they're currently undefeated for 13 matches, um, a lot of, uh, uh, you can make a lot of question marks about that undefeated uh, run because it included exiting uh, the League Cup. It was a, a win that wasn't the win and um, some Europa League games, one played in closed doors, etc. etc. Um, but uh, the, the, the fires have been, have been doused mainly and, um, and Solskjaer's in a position where people perceive it as he's, he's done a good job of the season when the actual results in terms of wins, draws and losses. Um, goal scored, there are 48 goals for 31 matches, um, suggests very much otherwise. Well, from one side of the northwest to another, and that is to Everton, who have been very active in terms of their pursuit of players so far in this uh, now open transfer market. Uh, we brought you news on the Transfer Window podcast of interest in Chago Silva, uh, who's a free agent uh, coming out of Paris Saint-Germain uh, just in the last week. But Duncan, you have got news uh, about another player, uh, younger, uh, different option from Lille, who you first reported was a target in March. Yes, Gabriel, um, the the 22-year-old Brazilian centre-back at Lille um, told you at the time that uh, Everton had made an offer of €35 million Euros for the player provisional offer and had done um, a lot of initial work on that deal. Um, they weren't the only club in, in England that are interested in him. Uh, he's Brazil under 20 international, one metre, 90 um, looks like he will turn into one of the, the top centre-backs going forward and is accessible at reasonable price, or at least a reasonable price in the pre-COVID market. Um, COVID has made a change to that. It slowed the process, according to the people at Lille. And you've probably seen some reports about Napoli being close to signing the player. Um, I checked into that, and the, the information I have is that this Napoli are kind of following a Real Madrid strategy here in that they uh, are putting the news out that they're close to signing the player, but they're working directly with the player and the agent to convince him that it would be better for him to go to Italy than it would for him to go to Merseyside. Um, there has, I'm told, been no offer 
to Leo as yet. So there's certainly no deal agreed with Leo. And obviously, um, Napoli are putting out noises that they can do it for 22 million euros, which is uh, a fee that would not be acceptable to Leo. So they're hoping to take advantage of Leo's financial problems to convince the player to come to them um, and then force Leo to take a lower transfer fee than they, they think and still think they, they can get in this market. Obviously, subsequent to that, the opportunity to take Thiago Silva has opened up to Everton and that he has been offered to him. And uh, and uh, he is a player, as you said in that podcast, that Carlo Ancelotti knows well, and you're buying um, a top quality defender with experience, the finished product, as opposed to the developing product. Um, and I think an interesting decision for Everton, if they can convince the player that Premier League is better for him than Napoli is whether they go for that um, and pursue that harder than the, the Thiago Silva deal. Um, one other point in this is that Gabriel is seen by Napoli as a replacement for Kaladu Koulibaly, who, as we, we told you in the last podcast, Napoli will sell this summer. They intend to sell this summer. They've told coach Gennaro Gattuso that he'll be leaving. Um, and they're trying to get as high a transfer fee as possible for him. Pre-COVID, the asking price was 100 million euros. Suggestion is that they go down to about 70 or 80 million euros at present. Manchester City, very interested, and the player, very keen on going to Manchester City if um, they push the button and agree uh, a fee that is acceptable to Napoli for the, the Senegal international. We've spoken recently about uh, the financial situations at Barcelona and Juventus and the fact that there is uh, no cash available uh, to either club to operate in this transfer market unless, of course, they sell or indeed in the case of loans. And we also um, had a discussion about artificial valuation regarding players involved in swap deals. Therefore, it was hardly a surprise at the beginning uh, of this week, when it uh, became public that uh, Barcelona had agreed, in principle, a deal which would see their 23-year-old Brazil midfielder Arthur go to Juventus in exchange for Milan Pjanic, uh, a 30-year-old midfielder, um, with valuations on players at 80 million and 70 million euros, respectively, even though especially in this particular financial climate, those valuations seem very, very generous regarding uh, both players. Duncan, I think this sort of horse trading type uh, deal that we've got going on here is something that I think you know we have discussed, but it's also um, something which I think we're going to see a lot more of, uh, given the lack of liquidity in football clubs where cash deals will be very rare. Yeah, like we, we've talked about this going into the window um, a number of times. Um, Graham Hunter mentioned that Barcelona would probably do something along these lines going forward. Roger Mitchell, who's a, a, an accountant by training, had mentioned that you should look out for this in the transfer market. And Bernie Mandic, another of our, our excellent guests, had, had also said um, this was a market and where the strategy 
could be used. And, you know, we've had some of our listeners saying, well, you, you told us Juventus were struggling for money. You told us Barcelona were struggling for money and they just offered in, uh, and, and agreed in Juventus's case, 80 million euros for a midfielder, Artur, that Barcelona are prepared to sell, not absolute first choice for them, one of the many players that they wanted to dump. And, um, and Barcelona are taking a... a an aging Milan Pjanic for 70 million. So how did that come about? Well, well the way it comes about is this. Um, by doing it, because of the, the way in which football clubs account for transfers, um, when you uh, bring a player uh, in, you do not put all of the cost of the transfer fee on your books in the first year. So if Artur goes to um, Juventus on a five-year contract at 80 million euros. The, the only 16 million euros of that will be put on Juventus's accounts in the first year. Um, and the, the rest is spread over the course of his five-year contract. Um, same system for Pjanic. Five, if it's a five-year deal at um, Barcelona, that 70 million gets spread over five years. Now, Artur was bought by Barcelona for 30 million euros in a six-year deal. He's been there for two years. That means that on um, Barcelona's books, he now costs, his, his, value, his residual valuation is 20 million. And they take 80 million from Juventus and they're allowed to say, this summer we made a 60 million euro profit on Artur because he had 20 million left in his valuation Juventus have paid us 80 million for him. So that's 60 million to add to our books to help us um, meet not so much UEFA financial fair play because that's been relaxed, but Spanish fair play, which is actually far more rigorous than UEFA um, financial fair play anyway. And then Pjanic cost them 14 million. Um, so they are improving their bottom line uh, by 46 million in that deal. In Juventus's case, they would take a 53 million euro profit on Pjanic because he's been at the club even longer and he has a residual book value of 13 million euros to them. And uh, Artur would cost them 16 million euros in the first year in terms of um, transfer fee calculations. So that's a, a 37 million euro profit for them. So instead of doing what would traditionally have been done in this situation, which is, okay, we want to get Pjanic off our books. Um, you want to get Artur off your books. Um, what do you, what's the difference in valuation between the two? 10 million euros, okay. Um, Juve uh, pay us 10 million and you can have that and it'll be a swap deal plus 10 million. They do two separate deals valuing both players way over the realistic valuation in the transfer market. There's no way Pjanic goes to any club in a straight deal for 70 million. There's no way Artur goes in a straight deal for 80 million. But as long as both sides agree to, um, to describe the transfer fees as such, um, then for book purposes and for financial fair play purposes, both clubs can uh, shine up what are not very... Um, uh, attractive looking balance sheets at the moment and allow themselves 
um, to do other deals and stay within football regulations going forward. With Juventus, there's the extra benefit of they get a, a high-paid player off their books. We told you several weeks ago that Pjanic was a player that they were trying to move on and that Barcelona was a club that were trying to move him to. So they take a high wage off their books. They bring in Artur, who will get a pay rise and a decent contract at Juventus, but then they can use Italian tax laws to make the gross cost of that salary lower than what they were paying Pianic. So they also save on wage costs. So this is a, a clever piece of financial accounting and surgery being done by two of the, you know, the, the biggest clubs in, in European football um, to allow them to do other work elsewhere in the transfer market. And again, last podcast, we talked about Juventus wanting to get Raul Jimenez in um, as a replacement for Gonzalo Higuain as their, their new number nine striker. And they're trying to get that deal down to um, 60 million euros with some players thrown in, maybe use a similar kind of structure as this. Um, but they're, they're getting resistance because Wolves are saying we value the player at 100 million euros and we, we won't let him go um, unless... We get it. As you say, Ian, I think we'll see more of this, a lot more of it in this window because the pressures on clubs are greater than ever, but they still want to be able to do deals. They still want to show to their fans we're bringing new players in, still want to freshen up their squads. Uh, and this is a, a sleight of hand manner in which they can get these deals done. Well, we know that Barcelona have been trying to offload Philip Coutinho on a loan basis, uh, knowing that they can't recoup the transfer fee in the current uh, economic climate. Um, but to use uh, an analogy, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, Duncan, if we simmer this down to the basics, is this just like about cooking the books? <laughs> it is a way of cooking the books, but it's a, a legal way of cooking the books. Um, which is, oh, I, I love which the is... idea of there being a legal way of cooking the books. <laughs> well, that's what it is. They're uh, they're producing some uh, some tasty tasty recipes in in, in Catalonia and uh, in Italy. Um, to be fair, both two two cities that I've had some of my best ever meals, so it doesn't surprise me. Didn't you train as a cook in in? Uh, I did in, in both, Italy at one point. In, in, yeah, and in Turin as uh, and in Turin as well. I did. That's another story. Another one for the memoirs. Moving on to uh, La Liga, Duncan, and interesting news about uh, the situation at, uh, again, another place where I did some cooking training in Seville. Uh, would you believe we've got a proper cooking uh, train happening here with regards to uh, the connections? And uh, Real Betis, who are looking for a new coach, might be about to do Watford a favour, is that correct? Possibly. Um, Javi Garcia is one of the, the candidates for um, Betis' job. He's been a candidate for some time. Um, it was clear that um, Ruby Ferrer at, at um, Betis was under pressure and the expectation had been that he would be dismissed if he lost uh, last weekend. He did, and he did lose his job. Um, Gracia is a strong candidate, has a lot of admirers at the club. Um, also, Marcelino, who um, left Valencia, 
um, not that long ago is another strong candidate for the position. I think it's a very difficult job. Um, I'm told that Gracia's preference would be to remain in England if he can find uh, a job that suits him. He's retained his um, his house in England. He's still living here um, in the hope that um, a, an opportunity to, to prove his worth in the Premier League, as he very much did at Watford, would re-emerge. Um, We'll be interested to see if Betis actually offer him that job. And yes, it would be a favour to Watford because Watford still have Javi Gracia on their books. They're still paying him his salary. Um, there is a huge uh, severance clause in his contract, which they have refused um, to honour and instead kept him on gardening leave. And obviously, if he goes and takes another job, then Watford will make the argument that um, we no longer even have to uh, pay you that gardening leave and um, and perhaps there'll be a, a little um, legal discussion involved in uh, in exactly how that exit process works. Um, if Betis are the club that offers him the, the job that he accepts or whenever another club um, of, uh, of sufficient stature um, moves to hire him. And with all due respect, uh, I just want to make clear I never did any training about cooking in Watford. Uh, <laughs> We're going to finish up today's Transfer Window podcast with the uh, very infamous Donkey Award, which I'm glad to say we're getting the golden envelopes back through the portion of Duncan. Oh, and I'll just turn that one off. And today's uh, Donkey Award um, is, <laughs> and I'm going to just read out the quote first and then give you the uh, commendations, Duncan. See if anyone amongst our listeners can recognise this quote, which came pre this season. I can guarantee you, as clear as day, Manchester United will win again. They'll probably win the league before Liverpool, in my opinion. And that's not being disrespectful. They'll probably win the league before Liverpool. That was our old friend Gary Neville, who has refused invitations to come onto the podcast uh, on about, I don't know, three times, Duncan, to discuss Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So we're going to dedicate this Donkey Award to the Gary Neville Award for backing the wrong horse. Now, the nominations, I can tell you, are as follows. Arsenal for putting most of their eggs in terms of recruitment in the Kia Chirachian basket. Uh, Duncan will explain that one, I'm sure, in great detail. Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich and his signing of strikers, asterisk, not Didier Drogba, um, but I'm sure you, you all know the other ones. And Brendan Rodgers for his signing of Ricky Lambert in a response to just missing out on winning the Premier League title in the 2013-2014 season. Backing the wrong horse, maybe he did. Or maybe Donkey Duncan would be a better description. Now, which of these will you like to award the Gary Neville Award for backing the wrong horse? You do have to say Roman Abramovich has a, a very bad record in, in backing striking horses, which 
Yeah, I wonder if Timo Werner's a little bit concerned that he's, he's going to get the, <laughs> the Abramovich scream <laughs> as, a, as a result of, uh, of uh, being but a little see, expensive. You, you, say this, you say this, Duncan, but every circle he's bought has, has come with a, a very good reputation and career. It's just they've absolutely stunk the place out at Chelsea. Yeah, Andrei Shevchenko, Fernando Torres... Alvaro Morata. I was going to say um, Werner has the advantage of, of being young uh, rather than at the wrong end of his career, but so did Alvaro Morata. The only, the only one that worked for him was Didier Drogba, which was the one that, uh, that Jose Mourinho insisted on signing um, as his kind of one of his arrival presents uh, as, uh, as Chelsea manager. Kia Jarabshin, yes, uh, an Arsenal fan. Um, I uh, I once interviewed Kia Jarabshin in his uh, private box at Arsenal Stadium um, for the Observer newspaper. And I would uh, recommend all our listeners who are interested in, in learning a bit about Kia Jarabshin's past and uh, how he explains the way he works as, a, as a, I think he called himself a football advisor rather than an agent in that interview. I can't remember the exact. Uh, he didn't phrase. have a license, as I remember, Duncan. That's why he had to be described as an advisor. Exactly. Um, uh, yes, it was some interesting commentary in that interview, which I think will educate what has gone on in his career. Um, subsequent to that, he, as um, a, a significant recruitment person in other Premier League clubs, said this week he's um, amused by the way that Kia Jarabshin's decided that he wants to talk to the press as though he is director of football at Arsenal and declaring that David Luiz's contract situation would be resolved um, in the coming week um, in the interest, best interest of, of all parties. And that, lo and behold, David Luiz has remained at Arsenal and, and be given um, a new contract there. And that has been a, announced since then. If you look at his history, he's done damage to um several football clubs who uh, had relied on on his deals. And um, there are certainly a number of Arsenal supporters who are asking questions about the, the number of deals that Jarabshin is doing at Arsenal at present and whether all of those deals have been in the, been the best option that Arsenal uh, could take in those situations. And I, I, I suppose in the coming season, now they have Mikel Arteta in charge and they feel that they've got a coach who can make a, a real difference to the team on the field. We'll see um, what having Jarabshin involved in a number of um, key transfers in a window in which they don't have much money to play with um, gives them on the, on the field of play uh, and whether it makes them competitive again. Um, but I think in a week in which uh, Liverpool finally got their hands on a much-desired trophy. We have to give this award to Brendan Rodgers so he can get his hands on a, a much-desired trophy. Um, and, uh, yes, backing the wrong horse, bringing Ricky Lambert to Liverpool um, the season after you had almost won the Premier League. If it wasn't for um, Mourinho's... Um, one, you know, wasn't the first team, wasn't quite the second team, but it was somewhere in between it, going to Anfield and and Steven Gerrard's um, famous uh, moment of Slippy, disaster. As he's known, the Celtic fans, Celtic nickname. fans call him Slippy. Yes, as in both uh, Slippy. <laughs> 
yes. So how how uh, Brendan Rodgers wanted to overrule the recruitment staff at Liverpool and thought Ricky Lambert was the the final piece in the jigsaw to to bring uh, Liverpool the Premier League title. That that's about as good an example of backing the wrong horse as you can find. There we go. Brendan Rogers is this week's recipient of the Donkey Award. We will be uh, putting that one in the post. I think he may have won one before. He certainly will be uh, nominated in the future, that's for sure. Now, as many of you have been very kindly reminding us on our social media channels, that we do engage with you uh, regarding what we talk about in the podcast regarding the issues that you want to discuss and information that you would like to have clarified or indeed confirmed. And of course, that continues. So please do get in touch with us on our social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, as well as Instagram and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles on Twitter and I am at Garbo SJ on Twitter. Uh, we also uh, have the podcast available on our own YouTube channel. Uh, so please just go to YouTube and search Transfer Window Podcast. And of course, we will engage with you. And uh, as always, we're very pleased to do so. If you like what you've heard and you know the drill, get on iTunes uh, and give us a five-star review. And that way we expand the community, which expands every day, uh, which is partly why we have such a quality podcast for you week in, week out. Until uh, next week, when we will be back with the Transfer Window podcast, we just want to say to you, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.